0: This week on Silicon Reel, we have Saranga Chandratalake
1: partner at Balderton Capital. If you want to make an impact, then one of the smartest, easiest, most efficient ways of doing that is to start a company. Increasingly, we are all going to have to be entrepreneurial. Forget a job for life. People don't have a job for a decade or even a job for five years these days. You have to have such passionate belief in the thing you're doing in order to be a really effective entrepreneur. An IPO is not a goal or an exit. An IPO is simply another step. The entrepreneurial challenge is knowing when to change and when not to.
0: Silicon Reel presents Saranga Chandratalake, Balderton
1: Capital. Seek to perfect your your game in every level, in every way.
0: In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene silicon real each week interviewing entrepreneurs venture capitalists financial technology accelerators and incubators in an exciting three-person format learn about the people behind the innovation locally filmed locally sourced silicon real it's about the people this is Silicon Reel, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup <clears throat> scene. I'm Brian Rose. I also host London Reel. It's uh, the same studio, but it's not just tech. Uh, we've recently had, uh, I was telling uh, Serenga here, uh, the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch on here. He's the Scottish actor. He was also the guy in Braveheart. I don't know if you remember the movie Braveheart. Do you remember that of movie? Course, yeah. There was the old guy in the movie that had that arrow stuck through his shoulder. Sure. And then they had to take it out and yeah. he, like, punched somebody. So it was that guy. Huh. So he was sitting there, and he was uh, really uh, an old-school actor, a little intimidating at first, but a really sweet guy. So uh, uh, we had him in there, and we had the godfather of hip-hop, Mr. Africa uh, Bambada, here about a week ago, too. So yep. that's all at London Real. You can check that out at londonreal.tv. But today we're here to talk tech. My guest is Manchester's own uh, Saranga uh, Chadra. <coughs> Chandra Tilika. Chandra Tilika. Yeah. Very good. I had it before you came here. Yeah. Um, you are a partner at the UK-based venture capital firm, Balderton, uh, which primarily invests in Europe-based technology and internet startups, uh, where you focus on Series A. Yes. We're going to talk more about that later. Uh, before this, you were a Chief Technology Officer of Autonomy Corporation, and then you spun out Blinks, uh, which was the intelligent search engine for video, which you later IPO'd in 2007. You spent a lot of time in California, uh, but you hold a master. Uh, uh, in computer science from the University of Cambridge, in addition to lots of patents. We'll talk about that later, too. Um, Balderton, uh, since 2008, had some very big exits, including uh, Betfair, which IPO'd for $2 billion, Uh, Bebo, who was sold to AOL, Natural Motion sold to Zynga, ScanSafe to Cisco, the list goes on, LoveFilm to Amazon.com, and uh, MySQL, a billion-dollar sale to Sun Microsystems. Saranga, welcome to Silicon Reel. Thank you for having me here. It's great to be here. It's great to be here too. You know, I, uh, I tweeted uh, you guys a, a week or two ago and uh, I was like, you know, we've got to have you guys on. You guys are major players here in London yep. and uh, I was actually researching you and so I, I saw your name came up and I think I read your article in the Telegraph sure. and uh, I was like, yeah, I'd love to have that guy on and then boom, you came back. So uh, I'm sure there's a lot of cool guys over at Balderton, but I'm so glad you're here. So <laughs> thank you for being here. Yeah, no, definitely. It's great to be here. Cool. Uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out a, a quote from you and just uh, see if we can kind of go down this line. Yeah. You once said, quote, What is it that Stanford is putting in the drinking water that Cambridge isn't?" Uh, you probably <laughs> heard this quote back to you a few times. Uh, it's not anything to do with technological smarts. It's something else. Uh, you went on to say the only difference is an aspirational difference. It's a cultural yeah. attitudinal difference. <clears throat> you know, I got my degree at MIT in engineering. I graduated in '93, and I don't remember the word entrepreneur ever being said. Right. And so that's probably closer to London than California. California in a weird way. Right, right, And so what is it about Stanford that br- it breeds that entrepreneurial spirit where the rest of the world doesn't necessarily take that
1: leap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I don't think either Cambridge, your Cambridge or mine, right. um, are, are as good at it as Stanford is. Um, and obviously Stanford... Um, isn't the only thing that creates that entrepreneurial buzz and feel in the Valley and in, in, in San Francisco. There's the whole area in general mix, you know, has a lot to do with it too. So um, while many great Silicon Valley and San Francisco entrepreneurs have spent time at Stanford or have gone through Stanford in one way or another, there are also many who haven't. And so it's not like it's the only component. Um, but I think it's... Um, you know, it's to do with, yeah, it's to do with this idea that, um, you know, if you want to make an impact, then one of the smartest, easiest, most efficient ways of doing that is to start a company. And, and you know, I think when you think about the average undergraduate, right, someone who's 18 to, to 22 years old, um, who goes to study at any of the schools you just mentioned, so, you know, MIT, uh, Cambridge here in the U.K., uh, Stanford in California, or any of the other sort of top tier schools like that, you know, typically the kind of person who goes to a place like that um, wants to have an impact. You know, they, they're working hard, they're smart, um, they are taking this step in, into an organization that's going to test them, that's going to challenge them, but they also hope it's going to be a platform, a sort of springboard into something bigger and greater. You know, um, very few people who go to these sorts of places are, are lazy and kind of want to do nothing afterwards, right? They, right. All, they all have a mission um, of some sort, even if they haven't figured out what that mission is. Um, and I think that when you go through these organizations and these, these places and these institutions, um, there are lots of different signals you get as to how you can have that impact and how you can do something interesting with your life. Um, and they are different in different places, um, often because of the environment in which those places you know are based. And I think that in Stanford, the overwhelming message is the way you can have an impact and the way you can change things and change the world for better and, and, and really use your skills and your talent in an interesting way is to start a company. Um, and that's a very, very deep ethos, which spreads across the whole of Stanford, and that, that's the interesting thing for me is that it's not just a double E um, which is you know, electrical engineering or computer science thing, um, it's a thing that impacts the people who go through the medical school there, the people who go through you know, I think the arts, you know, it, it doesn't really matter what you're studying there, you're, you're given this idea that if you want to change things you should probably go and start a company to do it, or at least join someone who is starting a company, uh, whereas I think in other places there is <clears throat> while you may have that message, especially today increasingly, you also have competing messages like you know, state academia that's the way you can change the world. Um, or go join a big company and change it from the inside. That's the way you can change the world. Or go to government and change the world. All of which are true to some extent. But I think Stanford's message is more focused on the entrepreneurial idea. And as a result, you see the sort of um, you know, wealth or, or wave of entrepreneurs that come out of that place. Right.
0: And so when you're talking about a culture change, it's, yep. it's impossible to change a culture from the top up. It really has to be from the ground up, doesn't sure. it? And so, especially in tech in this space, we're always hearing about, yeah, you know, the Valley and the Valley thinks big and they think about the hundred billion dollar company and we think about this and that. But yep. like you said, we're, we're in London. London's a fascinating city because it's the center of government. It's the center of finance. Yep. Some call it, you know, the center of fashion advertising, all of these pieces in Europe. Yep. And so there's constantly different people you meet in this city, which is refreshing. because you get great ideas. You don't just bump into entrepreneurs, you know, in, in sandals all the time, you know, you meet different kinds of people, but there are plenty of different business models in this city, including one of them is to go into government. Yep. So it's, 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 you're not going to really change that culture fast. Are you? No,
1: no, you aren't. Um, Maybe it shouldn't change. You shouldn't change. Exactly. I, 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 you know, culture is ultimately an authentic thing. You can't create culture or change it in some sort of top down edict sort of way, um, plenty of people have tried in history, and it generally it fails, right? Um, and um, so I don't think that's going to change. And I don't think you have to copy what Silicon Valley is. You know, I think one of the big issues that people sometimes have is they get obsessed with copying, you know, this thing that is Silicon Valley. And, and no one is going to be Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, arguably, Silicon Valley itself isn't really Silicon Valley anymore. So you know, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a fallacy to try and recreate it. I think what you have to do is say, well, when we say we want to recreate Silicon Valley, what do we really mean? And I think what we really mean is we want to be a place where people can build in particular high growth, you know, primarily technology driven or technology companies and do that in a capital efficient way that brings to the country or the city that it's in all the benefits that, that brings from employment to you know, economic growth um, and just a vibrant sort of lifestyle and environment. And if, if that's what you mean, then there are many ways of doing that that are not Silicon Valley. Um, and I think that's what we'll see from these other growing hubs. And London is one. Absolutely. There are a couple of others in Europe, I think. Um, but also there are others in, in, in the US as well. So, you know, New York has changed dramatically. In the last five ten years, I know you spent some time there, yeah. and so was Boston, uh, which again is yeah. a place that you know used to be very very different. You know, fifteen years ago, and, and now it's 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 a very it's a hive of activity, right. but in a different Bostonian way. Right. Um, I want to hear more about your background,
0: and I want to know why you came back to London. But what's a day in the life like for you? I mean, I check your Twitter feed, and you're at the Microsoft Ventures pitch day at the Coco yep. in, in Cam in uh, Camden. Mm-hmm. You know, you're uh, you're at Seed Camp. Yep. You know, I, I just can only imagine what it's like being you, you know, you're a partner now at Balterton. Yep. I had Ben Holmes on here from Index and I asked him kind of mm. the same question. Yep. I think there is an idea of what it's like to be a partner at a VC company and then the reality. Sure. Just like there's an idea of what it's like to be Bono and then the reality <laughs> of his life. You know, can you walk us through what a, a week is like for you? What you spend most of your time doing? Is
1: it a hard job? Is it is it fun? Is it have its own kind of issues? What's it like? Yeah. So I wish I knew you were going to ask me that question because I would have <laughs> brought with, you, with me a um, PowerPoint that I did a couple Days ago, um, or two weeks ago, um, that analyzed what I spend my time on. Um, and the reason I did it is because I'm new to venture. I've been a venture capitalist for all of three months, really, okay. now. Um, and so what I did um, was I actually took my calendar for the quarter, for the three months, and split it into different categories. And then I asked one of my partners, who's, being a, who's been a venture capitalist for, I think, 15, 16 years now, and asked him if I could do the same with his calendar. And he very kindly let me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to compare what I was doing versus what he was doing to try and see if I I was making some huge mistake about where I was spending my time because one of the things that people tell you going into venture is that you know time management is the critical thing because there are so many things you could be doing most of them are interesting um, and so knowing where to spend you know certain portions of your time is, is very important. Um, so anyway, if I'd if I'd known I would have brought you the full detail, but um, going off memory, um, what's interesting is that I spend the majority of my time on I would say um, uh, you know three big things. The three big things are portfolio companies, so companies that we have already invested invested in yeah. um and spending time with them um the next big thing uh is um the, uh, you know new entrepreneurs so basically spending time with entrepreneurs who are out there in the markets that we invest in which is you know certainly all of Europe um And then the third group is spending time in the ecosystem more broadly. So that's everything from, you know, sitting here and talking to you to meeting with many of the other companies and organizations that are involved in the process of building small, fast-growing companies. And the reason we, you know, I spend time with them is because those people will help our companies and also will often help us understand where the next companies might be coming from. So it's amazing how actually you spend, you know, in my case, I seem to spend about a third, a third, a third on those three. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the more time you spend at a firm, you will spend less time on that ecosystem because you probably are more integrally part of it and so you don't need to sort of spend time tending it and you can therefore spend more time meeting new companies and on existing companies. Um, so over time, I think it will shift. But you know, as a result, my average week is full of meetings, right? And, and mm-hmm. most of those meetings um, are with, with small companies, either ones that we've already invested in. So it's board meetings or more often actually because we're relatively early stage, just informal catch-ups with the companies that we're working with. Anything from product to hiring people to firing people to legal issues to, you know, um, new growth that's sort of, you know, changed something about the model or, you know, all these sorts of things. You sit down and and chat to and listen to issues. And if you can provide advice, more often than not, just be counsel, just be a listening board. Um, So a lot of time is spent doing that in a very sort of unstructured way. Um, And then a lot of time is spent meeting new entrepreneurs. So, you know, people who've set up a company and who have an interesting new idea and are trying to understand, you know, how they can take it to the next step. Um, And that could be with an investment from us or it could be other ways, but we talk to all of them because you know, we try to help them take that next step one way or another. There's a great concept called the power of no, and uh, you must have to say no
0: sometimes, <clears> because yeah. I'm sure everybody, to a certain extent, wants to bend your ear about an idea, yeah. and there's only so much time in a day. Mm-hmm. Even uh, meet you for a coffee, there's only so many of those yeah. in a day. And so how do you decide when to meet or when not to meet, or even when to return emails, that kind of
1: thing? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that um, I... Um, you know you know so when i decided to be a venture capitalist i spent a lot of time thinking about how venture capitalists work today and, and I did that by um, really reaching out to my network of other CEOs and, and asking all of them about their experiences with venture capitalists who they liked who they disliked why and, and, and so on and what I was trying to do was understand first of all if I wanted to even do this job and secondly if I was going to do it, how I would do it you know what I would model myself on and one of the things that came back as negative feedback with not, not all venture capitalists but certainly a decent number of them was this, um, was the fact that people didn't even give the time to say no. Um, and so one of my little rules is I'm always going to at least say no. Hmm. Um, because, you know, there there is not a single person who reaches out to me who hasn't spent, you know, hours and hours on their idea and, and poured, you know, um, you know, tons of emotional psychological physical effort stress etc into this idea uh, it doesn't matter if they're a four-year-old company with 20 employees or just you know one person on their own thinking this thing um, it's, it's, it's a big thing and to reach out to someone is another big barrier and I think it's really sad when people don't even respond to that email right. okay. um, and, and so you know maybe I'm lucky because I'm relatively new at the gig and so therefore I'm not getting that much inbound I suppose mm-hmm. perhaps but but I've decided to to you know, at least say no to everybody and to give people at least some kind of insight into why I said no. Um I try to meet as many people as possible, even if it's for a short time, and I'm figuring out sort of smart ways to be more efficient with my time. So perhaps I can meet people for shorter periods and, and that kind of thing, because anything I can do to help is something I want to do. But, but there are always going to be some I, I simply can't meet with. Um, you know, the easiest reason for a no is when someone reaches out to us, as many do, um, with ideas that simply don't fit what we do. You know, we typically invest in European companies. The vast majority of our investments will be in the US um, or with a European, sorry, in, in, the, in, the, in Europe or with a European founder. Um, and so there are people who, you know, who reach out to me from Baltimore with a, you know, Baltimore-based company, and I say, well, it's probably not going to work. Um, and, the, you know, we, we typically invest at Series A, so relatively early on. Um, and so there are people who reach out to me with companies that are even much further earlier, although I may meet with those because that's always interesting, or people who are, you know, way beyond that, and and that's probably a no. Um, And then we also generally don't invest in things like clean tech and biotech and so on, and we get a lot of those. So those are the main reasons I would actually just say no and give a very simple one-sentence answer. Otherwise, even if I am saying no, I try really hard to, to kind of, you know, elucidate why I'm saying no, um, because I, I hope that the feedback is somewhat useful to somebody. Is conflict with the portfolio, is that another reason to say no, or not a reason not to have a meeting? <clears throat> yeah, it, it's, it's usually, um, usually with a conflict with the portfolio, my answer will be, I'd love to meet, to pick your brain on things, but know that there's a conflict. So, you know, are we going to invest in you? From what I understand, probably not. But I would still like to meet you because we have a portfolio investment in the area. So if you can tell me more about this space, I'd love to meet with you. And, and then, you know, there, there's a tiny number of people who say, OK, now that I know that you're an investor in X, I'm definitely not going to talk to you because I'm scared of what, what I might give away. And that's fine. Um, but the vast majority of people um, still meet with you anyway. You know, right. they just they just mentally draw a line about what they're going to reveal or not, um, because they know that. You know, I, I think this idea that I, you know, that the ideas alone are, are, are what sort of creates the success is is silly. You know, I mean the reality is execution is you know, probably I don't know eighty percent of it. You know, so so I, very few people these days are super paranoid about. I've got this magical idea that if anyone else, if I tell anyone else, then then somehow that will be the end of my business. So is it is is information completely transparent these days, or are there a few people that hold out, or are there are there a few yeah. of, the, of the, the stealth mode projects, or is that all gone? I, I think it's less and less. I think stealth mode still makes sense if you have something which requires a lot of um, you know pre-build, so particularly hardware, um, certain very large technological products um, and projects, or. or something that's so disruptive that there's kind of a nervousness around its commercial, uh, you know, its commercial success if too many people know too early. But it's rare. It's definitely rare. You know, from what I understand, talking to my my partners, you know, 10, 15 years ago, people, um, you know, often there were NDAs exchanged before meetings would happen. Whereas now it's a pretty rare occurrence. That's inconceivable pretty much now. Pretty much. I mean, it's not not, not impossible, but...
0: Definitely a lot rarer. Okay. Talk to me about Balderton. You guys have a niche. In April, you announced, I think, a fund is about $305 million. <clears throat> strictly Series A, strictly Europe. It's a, it's a nice little niche to be in. It's very focused. Yes. Um, it's been noted by a lot of people as a place where you just want to be. Why there? Mm-hmm. Why restrict yourself? What happens when the BCD rounds come?
1: What is your mentality for that that choice? Sure. Um, I think a lot of that boils down to our philosophy as a firm of what venture capital is. Um, I think, you know, you can, you can look at venture capital and say it's just another, um, you know, it's it's another kind of fund management, you know, and it's about investments and it's about, you know, picking a company or companies, you know, acquiring a portion of that company um, and then essentially sitting back and, and hoping that your thesis, whatever that thesis was, you know, plays out, that it grows in value and at some point you sell that stake. Um, the other way of looking at venture capital is that it is a process where people get involved in companies and help build them. Um, how much you help, how you help, um, in, in what you know, the flavour of your help depends, of course, entirely on the company, um, and, and it changes from company to company. But I think that if you if you if you have that view, and that's really our view, then you realise that first of all you can't invest in lots of things um, secondly you can't invest in things that are that far away from you physically um, and that thirdly you want to try and limit what you're investing in by as many axes as possible in order to ensure that what you're doing is replicable and scalable in some way right? so if you invest in you know, a series D company and a seed company at the same time, the problems those two companies face, as important as they both are to each of the companies, completely different so you, know, you will have to go through a massive context switch as an individual if you're trying to help both companies in the same day um, and so will your whole organization right you know we have a talent director um, who helps people hire people you know who helps our companies hire people the kinds of people that you hire when you're a series d company totally different from the kinds of people you hire when you're a seed company right she would have to you know be doing both in the same day perhaps in the same hour and i don't think that's actually very effective you know to, you know you, you, you switch and first of all there's probably isn't one person who does all of that that well and secondly even if there was the the cost of changing all the time would be would be massive and would kind of of leave you spinning. Um, and so um, you know, I, I think that if you believe that you're going to get deeply involved and really try to help people build their businesses and, and really help them build their companies, then you do have to limit yourself somewhat, um, as frustrating as that can be. And trust me, it is really frustrating. There are times when we meet companies that are earlier than, than we would normally invest in or later than we would normally invest in. And we have, you know, painful conversations around the table which can go on for, you know, hours in some cases. Um, and, and we have made occasional exceptions because we just felt so compelled um, but I think that, you know, to do it really well, you want to try and focus with the majority of your business. Now, there are other firms that are larger organizations that have multiple teams that focus on these different areas. And I think that's absolutely fine, right? There's no reason why, you know, there are five partners and five other investment professionals at Balderton, We could have, a, you know, the same number again doing late-stage, you know, um, investments or the same number again doing seed investments. And, and that's fine. Um, but I think as a relatively, you know, focused team who like to work together and on, on all the same things together, Um, you know we're an equal partnership and we're a very open organization internally Um, we think that it makes sense to focus like that because that way we can be way more effective for the companies we're trying to help and when your companies grow into those later rounds what happens you follow with them yeah okay yeah so we follow with them Um, we will always provide the perspective of having been there from that period on Um, we are you know very happy to Um, admit that there are times when other people will help in other ways. Um, One of the interesting things we've done, though, is try to build a team that can help companies as they grow um, and in different ways. So, for example, if you look at the partnership, we all have very, very different backgrounds. um, And that's, you know, one of the neat things about our partnership is it's an equal partnership, which means that all of the partners are you know, both economically, but also from a sort of vote and weight perspective, equally distributed. So there's absolutely no difference between any of us. And the nice thing about that from an entrepreneur's perspective is that we all equally care about every one of our investments. So there's no concept of this is my investment and I care about it more because you know, I'll do better from it if, I, if it succeeds versus you know that guy's investment. You know, if he does well, then maybe he'll look better than I do in the partnership. And so by removing that barrier, what it means is that there are times when, you know, I will very honestly say, given what you're doing right now company X or CEO Y you should go and talk to my partner Tim or you should go and talk to my partner Daniel because they've been through what you're going through you know more times than I have and and so being able to switch like that allows us to support people as they grow and as their needs and so on change um, but um, you know as you grow you will probably bring in more investors and, and some of those investors will be better at certain stages and we welcome them to the table and, and you know hopefully use what they bring to the table. And you define series A by size? Yeah so um, <laughs> it's a great question. We we. We don't really define it by anything beyond a sort of a sense of where a company is. Um, and so size is a, is, a, is a thing that changes very much with the market. Um, so instead, it's more about, you know, Series A is typically, I, I, in my mind, you know, a company that is... Um, that is, you know, has built a product that um, has, has a pretty solid focus on what that product really is, um, has a, you know, the beginnings of an idea of a business model around that product. They have some level of traction, right? They're either you know, showing that people care about the product and using it and engage, are engaged with it, or they may be selling it, depending on the kind of business they're in. Um, and really, they get in the stage where they're saying, look, this thing works. We, you know, we're, in a, we're in the market that makes sense. We've built a sort of small team that makes sense. We've, we've built a product that's showing a lot of promise here. Now we need capital to, you know, grow the team to really sort of start to structure some of this. We need capital to help market and sell this thing at more scale. Um, But we also need investors who realize that while we think we found the right vein that we want to dig into, it may change and we may need to change direction at some point in the future. It's not just a matter of like building out new markets or whatever. And if you're in that phase, I think you're a series A, whether that's, you know, $2 million, $5 million, $20 million, um, you know, whether that's, three people, 10 people, 50 people. Actually, it's very different depending on the company and the kind of business you're in. Um, So so it's difficult for us to define it based on that. We try to define it on these admittedly fuzzier things, but it's... It's like some, what someone said about art, you know, it, it, I can't describe exactly what it is, but when I see it, I know it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what a judge said about porn as well. But yeah, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to give you the higherbrow example, but yeah, sure. Let's take no, it that. That's <laughs> going to make
0: a great clip of what Series A investment is because a lot of people don't know. So that's a good question. Um, is this market over incubated mm-hmm. What do you think of the incubators? You know, we've been covering this space mm-hmm. now for almost 18 months and there, there are so many incubators, but I can't tell if there's too many mm-hmm. or do they add something mm-hmm. valuable to the system? Obviously, Seed Camp has been around, Barclays is doing it, WeRA is doing it, yep. uh, Microsoft is doing it, uh, the co working spaces have them everywhere, there's the FinTech Innovation Labs, they're, they're everywhere, mm-hmm. um, and there's obviously even more iterations on them. Uh, what do you think about that? Is, is there a point where it becomes over incubated? Mm-hmm. When you see a company that's been incubated, are you thinking yes, or are you thinking it also comes with its own issues?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, the American in me says that we don't need to worry about this because if, they are, if we are over-incubated, then the market will sort itself out soon enough. Um, but um, <laughs> to give you a sort of more useful answer... Um, but I, but I, will I, it? It's like weird because
0: a lot of these cor- corporates come yeah. in that seem like they've got a lot of juice and a lot of money they can just spend
1: and it feels like they could incubate for years without getting the feedback. Uh, uh, sure, but it will change if things change for them, I think. You know? okay. um, and we saw that you know in the dot-com boom, right? So right. In, the, in the boom, there were a bunch of incubators, many of which were corporate and many of which shut down in two thousand. Right. Idealab that
0: comes to mind.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Idealab was a little bit different because it was um, set up purely as an incubator, and, and you know it was a bit of a different play. But there were there were corporate ones that I don't even remember the names of now, but that were set up by banks and telco companies and so okay. on. And, and it was an unsustainable business at the time because actually, um, you know, at that time the amount of capital required to build a business to any really significant scale, uh, you know, required you know, was significantly larger than it is today um, because of the cost yeah. structures involved. Yeah. And as a result, all these incubators created a whole bunch of orphan companies that couldn't really go take the next step. Um, So I think it's different now because actually you can go through an incubator and even if you, you know, fail to raise some massive round at the end of it, even by raising a small amount, you can actually get another six months, another year to prove the product and so on. So it's a bit different. So I can see why there are more and they're perhaps more sustainable today than they were 10, 15 years ago. Um, But having said that, we could be over-incubated. It's very very hard to know. Um, I don't think we are, my personal sort of view on this. Um, And the reason for that is that, you know, first of all, I, I do see genuinely interesting companies in just about every incubator I have visited, um, and the other really interesting thing that I always say about about things like incubators um, and entrepreneurialism in general is that you know you, you know you don't have to be a successful company to benefit a lot from trying. Out being an entrepreneur for a while in your career. I, I think that, you know, increasingly, we are all going to have to be entrepreneurial in some way or another. Um, if you look at the stats around the way the jobs market works and the fact that, you know, people forget a job for life, people don't have a job for a decade or even a job for five years these days. And so understanding that you need to be entrepreneurial in the way you think about yourself um, and that, you know, me ink is a real is a real concept, um, you know, is, is very important. And one of the best ways of experiencing that is to be an entrepreneur. And throwing yourself out there and saying, okay, I've got this idea, I'm going to run with it and see what happens. And even if you fail horribly, that's okay. Um, You will learn a lot about how it, you know, what it takes to to, to run something. You know, what it takes to be this sort of rounded individual who understands a bit about the way commerce and business and everything else works. And uh, you know, I think that's a great, incredibly valuable thing, whether or not you know these companies succeed. So when I look at incubators, you know, I I look at them and I, I know that the majority of the companies there, you know, aren't going to make it to Series, you know, A, let alone B or C or an IPO. But, but that's okay, because I think everyone who's involved, assuming they go into it with the right attitude, will, will benefit a lot from it anyway. And even if they go and do something very different after that, um, it just not matter. And you know, it's still massively valuable to them, I believe. You know? um, so for those reasons, I think it's cool. There are lots of them out there. And I think it's great that corporates are you know, spending the dollars to, to actually do it and the pounds to actually do it. And um, you know, I think that um, in that sense, it's, it's a benefit for all of us. The one that comes to
0: mind to me in the States is Y Combinator. You know, sure. They've had a lot of success, a lot of big companies. They sponsor. Sponsored this class at Stanford: How to Start a Startup, mm-hmm. which I listened to on podcast form, of course. And uh, you know, they really have, and they had some interesting stats. They ran the numbers. You know, was it three partner, uh, three team founders, founding yep. teams, two, one? I mean, they have a lot of data. Yep. And uh, I was wondering if you see in them, I mean, are they the premier one in the U.S.? Are the things you see in them that are like, wow, they do this, this, and this, right?
1: That. Maybe we should kind of look at in London to do this, this, this. Sure. Right. Yeah. So do they I um,
0: systematize it more.
1: Yes. I mean, so so YC is awesome. Right. It's, yeah. it's not it's less of an incubator, more of a, you know, um, more of a phenomenon, really uh, business phenomenon, frankly. Um, I think one thing that I notice about about YC companies that I feel, um, you know, European companies could learn a bit about is how they tell the story there's a lot of teaching and tutoring that goes on at YC around how you pitch your story and how you tell your story and and I think there's still a bit of a prevalence in in Europe at times about this idea that you know if I've got a great great idea or a great product or a great business I shouldn't need to tell my story I, you know it should be obvious from from my traction or whatever else and and of course that's somewhat true sometimes um uh, but I I don't as an entrepreneur myself, I, I don't see why you'd ever stop at that. Like, surely you should, you know, you should seek to perfect your, your game in every level, in every way. And and I would say that one way, you know, uh, you know one of the things I've learned about being an entrepreneur is that you are always... Selling one way or another, you know, whether to new recruits, whether to investors, whether to customers, partners, and and you know, I think YC is very very good at helping you understand how to think about you know what you're trying to sell as an idea and how to compartmentalize and structure that into a pitch, a narrative that really makes sense. Um, and I you know we I, I certainly look at companies that are awesome companies, but it takes me a while to dig into what it is they're doing and why they're doing it, how they're doing it, and and that's a real shame because there are certain cases where if someone's not going to give you the time to dig in, then they're never going to see what you're doing. And unfortunately, that means you will probably won't raise money and you'll probably not hire the right people and not, probably not get the right customer and so on. So I think that that's one little thing that we could do better here in Europe. Um, and I don't know, I haven't spent enough time with the incubators here to know how well a job they're doing of that. But I think that's one area that, that um, certainly I've been coaching entrepreneurs on um, because I think it's an important difference. Yeah, I think they had a part, a class in that at the Stanford lecture about the narrative. So. I'm sure they did. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's crucial because especially in, in this, you know, we're so time, time poor in this you yep. know, in this world that that narrative really sticks in your head, and more so than you think. Even if you're an analytic type guy like you
1: are, maybe I am, it's still that that, that story is what always uh, yeah. the David and Goliath sticks in your head, right? You know, humans pretend that, um, or some humans pretend that they think in spreadsheets. We don't, right? I mean, every bit of research you can read about neurology or you know the development of the human mind, you know, we're social animals, we're storytellers. You know, we, we are not, we're you know, uh, math and numbers, um, you, you know, in a fundamental sense, yes, have an impact on us, but that is not the real way that we really make decisions um, most of the time, you know? Um, And so, you know, I think that understanding that and therefore using that as a tool as well uh, is is critical. Now, that doesn't mean that people are going to invest you just because you have a great story. Of course they're not, you know, or or join you because of that. Um, But I think it's a very, very important part of what happens. Let's talk about you. Uh, You were in the States for
0: a long time. You act like a Californian. That's a compliment. I'm from there. (laughs) And uh, you you were operating for a very long time, you know, with yeah. blinks with the IPO blinks, yeah. um, the IPO here, but you were still in the States Correct. when that did. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I can thank you for a lot of things that go on in YouTube today because of blinks. So, but I'm not sure if that's true. We can mm-hmm. check in on that later. Why leave the operating environment? Why go into VC and why come back to London? I'm sure you've had to think long and hard about yep. this. I'm sure your kids probably have American accents. Yeah. I'm not sure. Why make that decision?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, um, they do. And more shockingly, so do I at times, it seems. <laughs> but um, but um, no, I mean, so I guess th- there's a bunch of questions there. But the, um, why you know, investing versus um, uh, operating? Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I, so I love startups. You know, everything, if I look at my life and if I look at where I've had the most fun and what, you know, where I've been the most effective, I guess, um, it's always been in, you know, involved in startups. Um, you know, from, from um, when I was, before I was two digits old, you know, before I was 10 years old, I could code. And me and my best friend at the time, you know, had this great master plan to build a computer game and go and sell it and become millionaires. And it failed miserably, of course. But um, ever since that day, ever since those days, um, I've always been involved in technology companies in that small early stage. Um, It's just a very, very compelling thing for me um, because, you know, I love technology in a very, very visceral way. um, And I love that it's now changing the world in an amazing way. Um, That wasn't obvious even when I was a kid and I wasn't a kid that long ago. um, But I remember, you know, explaining what email was to someone once, um, friend of the family and. And like, you know, and then beginning to realize how it was going to have this chain result into so many other things. And, 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 and I think that, you know, it's just a wonderful, um, you know, privilege to be to have the right skills and to live in a certain period of time where you can be part of that massive wave of, of change. Um, and it's just so exciting because you learn so much and you see so much. And then, of course, it creates this amazing culture around the team and the people who do this. Right. Because there you are, small gang of, of you know, rebels trying to change this thing that you think is really Really important that you have to change um, you know everybody it feels like everybody 's against you um, there are terrible terrible lows um, you know uh, of which I, I you, you know, like that. <laughs> I, you never liked that at the time uh, at all. You know, it's horrifying, um, and really, really bad. Um, but you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, you know, and you realize that a year, two years, three years later, you know, and, and so, you know, I've, I, I've always enjoyed all of that. Um, and I think that whatever I did, uh, in, in, in my, whatever I do in my life, I, I'm going to want to be involved in that sort of world. Um, what I realized though, when I did blinks, you know, which is the company that I, I mean, I, you know, founded and and sort of ran for a long time um, was that you have to have such passionate belief in the thing you're doing in order to be a really effective entrepreneur, because there are so many of these lows that, you know, you, you, you have to believe irrationally that this thing's going to succeed. Otherwise you can't, you can't do it. Right. You have to be kind of a crazy person um, or a slightly naive person, a combination of both. Um, And, you know, I looked and I didn't ever find you know the the single idea that 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 I think made me think yes this is the one that I'd drop everything else for to go and do and and I think you have to have that otherwise you can't be a good CEO again Uh, but I still wanted to be part of that world and to help people perhaps who were doing that and so you know I left Blinks a while ago now and you know um, as a CEO at least and you know um, I spent a lot of my sort of spare time uh, since then working with founders and entrepreneurs, you know, I did angel investments, I, I did a lot of mentoring, um, and I discovered that I really enjoyed that. And while it isn't quite the same as being in the hot seat yourself, mm. it's definitely pretty close. But I think actually great investors are, are generally pretty operational, you know, and great operators understand the investment mindset, you know, and I think that in, in many ways, you have to, to get both. Um, I learned a lot about the investment mindset running Blinks. Um, and now that I am an investor, I think the operating experience is going to be a valuable thing to, to, to know and have. Um, regarding your other question, which is about US versus Europe. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could go, you could have gone down the road. You could have gone to Andreessen. You could have gone to a lot of different places. Right. Sandhill Road. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so it's, um, it's a really good question. And it's one that, you know, I pondered about a lot. Um, basically, the the, the the reasons are, you know, usually the most interesting opportunities are in the less obvious moves, right? Um, and that's something I've learned time and time again. Um, and, and I love that. And I love rolling the dice on that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think, it, I think it's boring to do the, the obvious thing. Um, a lot of my fellow European entrepreneurs who moved to the Valley stay there um, forever and are very, very happy there. Uh, and, and having been there for 10 years and had kids there and everything else, I think we could have easily done the same thing. Um, but I, I really thought, you know, it'd be nice and interesting to do something different. And I wanted to sort of see what different could be and what that could mean. And, you know, I spent some time back in Europe, and I I came out and visited and stuff, and I did a really interesting lecture tour that took me around universities in the UK, and I, as a result, met lots of people studying particularly computer science and engineering. And what I realised is that the raw talent and the raw... Um, energy and excitement around perhaps starting companies and doing these things was was alive and well, you know, and it was alive and well in a way that it hadn't been 10 years earlier when I'd last been in the area. And then I started to dig into sort of what's the infrastructure, what's the support, what's the community and I discovered stuff that never existed you know, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, you know, shows like this, you know, all, all the other publications that help support the community, um, you know, venture capital firms that are finally investing in a more Silicon Valley kind of way, um, you know, angels who are getting involved, who've done it before, who've had great exits and themselves and who are actually helpful and you know all of these things have have started to happen in a way that that hadn't happened before and I started to realize that there was a wave here that could be that could be really great and that could be really interesting and I thought well what better than to go and get involved in that um you know, if I can be helpful, if I can provide the perspective from the valley, which sometimes is valuable, sometimes it's not, um, but also be involved in something that's that's more nascent, that's more fun, that's that's messier and more chaotic. Um, and I you know, I love that a lot more. And then you look at the other things that are very compelling about being here, you know, one of the things is the diversity, right? So Silicon Valley, although it's a very diverse place in that in that there are a lot of immigrants and so on, it's still very Californian as a place. Um, whereas I think Europe is 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 not one place. You know, it's it's Berlin, it's London, it's Paris, it's you know, Stockholm it 's copenhagen and, and and many other places and and you know that diversity is is really cool and really energizing um, and so that drew me to it as well um, and then you know finally, I guess somewhat patriotically, I, I, I do believe that, um, although I am both an American and a Brit, but um, you know, I, patriotically I do think that there is, you know, Europe in general and the UK in particular have a great history in entrepreneurialism. Um, if, you, if you learn a bit about history as, as, as I did growing up in Manchester about things like the Industrial Revolution, you'll, you'll realize very quickly that many of the great first entrepreneurs came from places not that far from here. Yeah. Um, and it's a shame that we've sort of lost our way a little bit in some of that. Um, and, and we haven't completely. There have been some great entrepreneurial success over the last 20, 30 years, but it hasn't been at the depth that I think it could be. And so to be part of that new movement and to be able to help in some way, that that seemed like a, a really sort of fun thing and a meaningful thing to do. I'm sold, Then I want to move here, and I already live
0: here. <laughs> you know, I've tried to describe this ecosystem to other people, and it just it, it, there's some great energy in this city right now. There's great passion. I think mm-hmm. everyone feels like we really are on the verge of something. Sure. There's, everyone is willing to help. Everyone's willing to collaborate. And uh, the other thing that I noticed is that in a good or bad way, there's no, um, there's no PayPal mafia. There's no tiered structure. So mm-hmm. you're not walking around, and you're not rubbing elbows with the guys that have made it necessarily. Everyone's still trying to make it. Everyone yep. wants to make it. And so... I I feel like we're in this unique place that in five years isn't going to exist anymore, where then you will have you yeah. know, the success stories and the tiered and then the reinvestments. And how do you describe London when you, when you, when you try to get it into your head? What is this ecosystem feels like? Also, it's, it's not just London. Of course, it's Cambridge. It's Manchester. Yeah. It's not just the
1: roundabout. It's all parts of London. Yeah. Have you got it? figure it out in your head? I haven't fully. You know, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm trying to spend as much time as possible in all those areas to try and figure it out more. Um, I think you're absolutely right. It's earlier in, in the development of the community. And so the nice thing about that is that it, it does feel like a, a more level playing field. Um, you know, one thing people don't talk about a lot in the Valley, um, but it's true, is that it isn't actually as open and transparent as people like to pretend it is. It is a little bit elitist at times. And I think that having pedigree, whether that's Stanford or Berkeley on your resume, or whether that's um, you know, having been you know, one of the right companies, does actually make quite a big difference Um, you know and and, um, not to say you can't break through people do all the time but I think there is a bit of that there um, which is very natural happens in every society um, but I don't think that's happened as much in Europe yet and that that level playing field is is, is fun and I like the fact that I meet and if I look at sort of two um, pitch meetings side by side I'll meet one person who's really young and has never done any of this before knows nothing about any of this doesn't even really know what venture capital is um, and he or she years, you know, pitching me this great idea. And then I'll meet someone who's kind of, you know, someone who's been involved in two or three companies and, you know, is well connected and everything else. And, and actually we get to look, look at them equally. Um, the downside is you don't have the depth of prior experience, which is right. so helpful, you know, right. um, going back to the rationality point, you know, entrepreneurs, especially the good ones are, are, are irrational, completely irrational. There's nothing rational, rational about starting a company and believing that you'll take over the world, right? I mean, what, you know, why would Mark Zuckerberg ever think that was going to happen from this project in his dorm room, right? You know, um, so you have to be a bit, of a, a, a bit of a sort of, you know, bizarre personality to do that. Um, but the other thing that helps is, is things like role models, right? Being able to see that other people have done this. And maybe now they are way beyond your reach and you could never even imagine speaking to them. But if you dig into them and read their, their stories and their history, you realize that actually they were not dissimilar to you, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever it is. And I think, I think you know, that's a key thing that we don't have as many of here. And the role models we do have sometimes are a bit tired you know, and, and it's not really as relevant to the current sort of generation of entrepreneurs as it perhaps it would be to, to one 10 years ago. And so I think having depth of all of those sorts of people around the ecosystem is key and that's one of the things we don't have quite as much as you would have in the U.S., Um, certainly in California and even in areas like Boston, I would argue, where, you know, sure, it's smaller, but there have been 20, 30 years of interesting tech companies. If there's one change that that London needs to make for the next five
0: years in order to (coughs) promote tech, what is the one thing you see that we're lagging on? We've obviously seen the tax incentives. We've seen immigration being talked about. I don't know if that's going to change now. But is there some bottleneck that you see where we really need to make sure this doesn't or does happen?
1: London specifically? Or? Yeah, uh, yeah, or UK, or UK.
0: Sure, okay, well... Or Europe, even, if you want to
1: go Yeah, ahead. so if I say UK, um, just because just it helps me for my answer better, immigration. Immigration okay. is, for me, the number one thing. I don't think taxes are as important. Um, and, I, you know, it, it, it makes some sense, um, especially, you know... Um, breaks on, on investors, I guess, who take a lot of risk, um, and that's what a lot of the UK stuff has been. Um, I don't think it really matters for entrepreneurs. I think when you're a second or third time entrepreneur, you start to think about your tax bill, but I never met anyone who started a company somewhere because the tax bill was going to be lower if in 10 years' time they sold their company for a billion dollars. Right. You know, in fact, if you met someone like that, you probably shouldn't invest in them because they're thinking about the whole thing. That's a low way. margin business you're it, talking it, about. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I've always said that like, my personal philosophy on taxation is if I want to maximize you know, Post-tax um, income or wealth, then I'd, I'd rather do that by increasing pre-tax than, than than trying to reduce the tax. You know that that's sort of my mentality. I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that mentality. And and the proof, by the way, is the fact that you know you know we've just talked, spent a bunch of time talking about probably the most entrepreneurial place on the planet, and it's California, which is you know I think second only to Hawaii, the second highest tax. In, you know, and, and also by the way, like a, a, a tax nightmare. You know, you know they have retroactive taxes a couple of years ago. They have all kinds of crazy property tax. You know, so. It's not a, it makes no sense as a taxation place. So, so I, you know, so as you can tell, I sort of passionately feel that, that the tax thing is a bit of a side argument. I think the much bigger issue is talent. You know, um, people, there aren't that many people who are going to do this crazy thing because it's crazy. Um, and there are also not that many people who are willing to follow these crazy people. And, um, you know, we have to be a place that is a magnet to and that opens the door to these people. Um, and, you know, you look at our portfolio companies, what's the single biggest issue they all have? It's hiring. Right. And, and, and it's not because there aren't good people. There are great people all over the world. And, and we just need to make it easier for them to be able to get those people and get access to those people. And I think that um, you know, that's something which, in general, Britain has been good at for you know a couple of thousand years. If you look at the country, you know, there has been a lot of immigration to this country for a long time. It's why we have one of the most diverse societies on the planet. And I think it's benefited this country massively um, and, and, and maintaining the right gateway for the right people, um, and maybe sometimes all people, it, it, that, that's a key part of what has to be solved. And this is, you're really talking about non-European
0: immigration, because we kind of have that somewhat settled, although sometimes Cameron seems to be talking about restricting European immigration, right. which seems ridiculous to me. But you're talking about immigration from India, from China, I mean, from America. It wasn't easy for me to get over here either.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, again, and my intent is not to get, like, overly political, but, um, yeah, so first of all, there are a lot of people who talk about restricting even immigration within Europe um, and um, you know I think that would be a retrograde step um, and, and yeah it's also about immigration from the rest of the world too because unfortunately the genetic dice do not roll in some convenient way you know um, they, they roll all over the world and, and the reality is that the next Steve Jobs um, or one of the people who could be the next Steve Jobs is, is probably somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa and unfortunately nothing you or I or anybody else does is probably going to change you know that Boy or girl's opportunity to to become the next Steve Jobs, um, which is really you know deeply saddening for me. Um, but I think that as a as a country, you know, you know, we should at least be helping the one who who might be in Estonia or the one who might be you know in in in, in the US or whatever else. And I don't see why we can't do that more. Um, so that that to me is the biggest thing. And, and like I say, it's from that very. I guess, high level philosophical argument, but also all the way around to the very simple tactical issue, which is that, you know, what is the single number one issue that high growth tech startups have in, in London right now or in Britain right now, they will tell you it's talent. And, and you know, if, they, if the pool of talent they could source from were greater, they would have less of that problem. Right. Well said. A lot of people watching uh,
0: are, are young entrepreneurs and even older entrepreneurs that are just starting that I'm sure are going to email you and getting expecting no's or yeses. Um, <laughs> but you have been through the IPO process. Yeah. And for a lot of people starting off, a lot of people, that is the ultimate goal. And I've talked to people sometimes and they're like, IPO, IPO this. And I'm like, you know, what about private capital? And it seems yep. to be a, a three letters that are always on people's minds. Yep. We've obviously <clears throat> seen some successful exits this year in London, which probably makes it more on people's minds. But you've lived through one. Yep a while back seven years ago right and you've seen what it's like you've seen what it's like afterwards then you have to deal with the stock price every day you probably still get phone calls about the stock price of blinks right is what have you learned what can you pass on knowledge wise about the ipo
1: process and is it a necessary step in today's age sure sure i mean look i i think the most important thing and plenty people have said this before me is to understand that an ipo is not a goal or an exit you know um, an ipo is simply another step in your in your journey as a company, um, and it's a, you know it, it is what it is. It's a fundraising step, right? It's it's a, at a certain point in time. It makes sense either due to the quantum or the nature of what you're trying to do. Where the best way for you to raise you know the next amount of money that you need is to do that publicly through you know to offering equity publicly um, and and doing it through a through a regulated market, and that's all an IPO is. No, no more, no less. Um, you know, I, I don't think. Um, and, and so from that perspective, absolutely, there are many great companies that will not IPO. Um, and that's absolutely fine. Because what they will do instead is they will discover that for their business, they can raise the money privately or they just don't need that much capital. And that therefore, you know, public or private, they don't need sort of late stage capital per se. Um, and I think we see a lot of, you know, all of those combinations going on right now um, out there. I mean, you just need to look at some of the really, really large companies um, that are growing right now in Silicon Valley, particularly sort of some of the Y-combinator companies you mentioned earlier, people like Airbnb, and then companies like Uber, you know, Square. I mean, a lot of these companies have been able to raise significant, significant amounts of capital without going public, um, and I think that's fine, and I don't think they necessarily need to go public um, any time. Um, Facebook was one that did go public, but that resisted it for a very, very long time, and I think potentially would have res- resisted it for longer if they could have. Um, the big thing you have to realise that because it is not a goal or an exit or an end point, um, actually remember that there is something you're going to have to manage afterwards. And that's a big, complex, difficult thing. Um, and I've experienced the highs and the lows of that through Blink's. Um, Blink's share price has, has dipped and dived and, and also you know soared to heights. Um, and, and And it's a very... Destabilizing experience for you as an individual, as a CEO, but also most importantly for your team and your shareholders, who right. are the, the t- 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 two constituencies that you end up caring about the most, um, because they're the two constituencies who give you the most, right? Um, who who invest in you either financially or through their time and efforts, um, and you want them to do well as a result, because you know they believed in you at some point in this story, and and you you know you you, you have this duty, moral duty at least, if nothing else, um, to, um, to 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 try and you know ensure that that, that, that that belief, that mission turns into reality. I know a lot about what it's like to, to do an IPO, I to, to work for or you know, run a public company, and I can spend hours giving you ideas and examples of you know, things that go well, things that go badly. But the most importantly, realize that it's not an exit or a goal or an end point. Instead, it's just another step. Um, it's a step that can make sense, that is you know not the only step at that stage anymore at least in today's market Um, and that also if you take that step you have signed up to new responsibilities um and and you need to take those responsibilities seriously
0: i always ask everyone here a few questions at the end i'm going to ask you if you could make a phone call to the 20 year old uh, saranga and give that young man a bit of advice i guess you'd be at cambridge at
1: the time yes i would be yeah what what would you tell him what what advice would you give him that's it's always a difficult question um (laughs) Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to say slightly sort of cliche thing. I'm, I'm, what I would tell the 20 year old me is what's your health, hmm. um, which is, a, sounds a bit left field, but, um, oh, that's good. yeah, I mean, I, I, um, you know, I think that, um, if I, if I look at kind of what, what the last sort of, I guess, 15, 16 years has been, you know, um, the, the one thing that I really lost, you know, d- dropped the ball on for, for chunks of my life was my health. Hmm. Uh, and it's a really important thing, you know, and I, and, um, you know, I think that again, when you get into ideas and these sort of, if you're in a, company that's growing very rapidly and you want to do all these different projects and be involved in all these things which is the kind of thing that the 20 year old me was going to want to do and, and was always going to do um, it's, it's easy to sort of let certain things drop by the wayside you know one thing is kind of balance in your life you know having other interests beyond the, the thing you do as work um, luckily I kept a bit of that um, another thing is family right and friends and, and, and again luckily I think I was able to keep a bit of that balance and, and I didn't do too badly on that front um, but the other big thing is health um, and you know, um, you know you sort of realise um, that, you know, at a certain point in your life that, you know, actually none of this is worth it if, if you're going to, you know, go to an early grave, right? And so um, I think um, that's something which has changed a lot. Now people are very interested in this balance issue, um, you know, both psychologically and emotionally as well as physically, the whole concept of mindfulness and you know, the whole concept of, of, of balance and, and of, you know, understanding that it's important to, to all these things. And what I found as I've adopted more of that myself and I'm no kind of mass adoptee of these things um, by any means, is that actually it's maybe better at the thing that I focus on, you know, because actually if you're healthier, you can work harder, you can concentrate for longer, you can, you know, um, focus and and drive for longer, um, which is a weird thing to, it takes a while of adjustment while you kind of switch, but once you do switch, I think it makes a huge difference. And and so that's the thing that I would, I think the 20 year old me totally missed. Good advice, first time I've heard that, I'm really glad you brought that up. I think a lot of
0: us tech and scientific type people, since you're so focused on the brain sometimes, I know this was the case when I was, you know, at MIT and engineering, I was just like, it's all about the brain and the body is just to carry this brain. It's mm-hmm. this exceptional brain that everyone tells you is exceptional. Yep. And so you're just, you focus so much on that that everything else yep. goes by the wayside. Um, best advice you've ever received business or personal?
1: Um, interesting question. Um, <laughs> um, so I think, um, the best advice I ever received, um, on the, on the, on the, on the business side, um, was a, um, it was was a really funny sort of conversation I had with one of the co-founders of Autonomy, um, CTO, co-founder of Autonomy, a guy called Richard Gaunt, um, and he um, just as I was starting Blinks, I had a chat with him. Um, He had kind of like ducked out of the entrepreneurial scene by then. He'd been sort of so fabulously successful that he wasn't doing that kind of thing anymore. Um, And I said to him like, you know, do you have any advice? And he said, yeah, I have a really important piece of advice to you. This is a great rule that you can live by for the rest of your life. And I said, okay, tell me, tell me. And he said, "Um, you know, one day someone's going to come to you and they're going to listen to what you do when you pitch them you know when you're selling something to them and um they're going to completely misunderstand what you do and they're going to you know you're going to say x and they're going to say at the end of the meeting okay okay get it you do y right and he said and 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 that day you're going to have to um, completely, you know, you're going to blink and then, and then turn around and say to the person, yeah, you got that exactly right. We do why. And essentially in your brain, completely change everything that you do and, and now, you know, start to pretend that you're actually doing the, the, the second thing. And then and in your mind, be figuring out how you're going to pivot your company to start doing why. Now, unfortunately, the next day, you're going to meet somebody else and, again, and you're going to go to them and you're going to say, um, you know, that, that we do this certain thing. And they're going to say, um, oh, okay, I get it, I get it. And again, they're going to misunderstand and they're going to say that you do something else a third thing. Um, and to that person, you're going to say, no, 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 you've completely got it wrong. We don't do that. And you're going to stick to your guns and say, we do this. Um, and I said, well, hang on, how, how is that success? And how is that advice? And, and he said, well, this is the point, that the entrepreneurial challenge is knowing when to change and when not to. Um, because the opportunity space that we all end up in, you know, the, the, where you start a tech company, typically is, is some big, large field that's changing rapidly. Um, and as a result, you actually have, you have lots of choice. You can go in any direction you want to. And, and frankly, there are pots of gold in many of these different directions but the weird weird hard thing that you've got to do is build up an internal radar so that you know when sometimes someone says i think you're going here or you should go here you say absolutely no freaking way i know that i need to keep going in my direction but other times weirdly someone's going to say but how about this way and because you understand the feel so well you suddenly realize that this person has you know, spotted something that you've missed and now piecing it all together, you absolutely need to shift it that way. And, and, and being in that state of mind where you understand the field so well that you can pivot at a moment's notice because it makes sense and you know that viscerally, but at the same time, non-pivot at certain times because you know viscerally that it's the wrong idea. If you can achieve that balance of, of mind, then, then you're there. Um, and, and that's what I look for when I look at entrepreneurs. You know, mm. we, we, we invest in companies early stage enough that there's almost no chance that the ultimate business that they end up building, if it's successful, will be the business that we invested in. So it's it's almost stupid to look at that. Um, we still look at the company and the product, because, but not because we care about the company and product per se, at least in my mind, but because we care about why this person has started building this company or this product. Right. And if when you start to understand the story of how they got to where they are right now, you see that they are the kind of person who knows when to focus and blindly focus whatever the rest of the world is saying, whatever's crashing around them, keeping their head, you know, to to sort of bastardize um, Rudyard Kipling slightly, um, but at the same time know when to take the right input and totally swivel. If you, if you spot that sense in someone, then you know you've got a real entrepreneur. Right. Last question to uh, the person out there that is
0: uh, going to finish watching this and they're going to pitch you, they're going to email you, they're going to meet you. W- what do you want to hear in that 60 seconds? What don't you want to hear? Is, is, there, is there something that's not even a pet peeve or just something that you know, they should work on before they come and hit you with their idea?
1: Um, oh, that's uh, difficult. I, I, you know, I there is no pet peeve, um, and and people um, I think make an impact in very very different ways. So um, I don't um, I don't think there's sort of any single one thing. Um, I think um, you know, um, especially at the sort of stage that. That, that, that we are looking at the most important thing um, the, the, the most the easiest thing to start talking about um, early and, and to help me understand who you are and what you're trying to do is to talk about your product you know so you know some people come and do this sort of three slides of what the market is you know uh, that's important but we can do that later right some people come in and do three slides of who they are again really important but but not the most important thing right now I think the most the, the, the focal point is to say this is this thing that I've built you know and and, and if you think about it the product has you know in it. Uh, implicitly some aspect of what the marketplace is and what the market is it has implicitly inside it who you are because right. you've built yourself into it right. it has implicitly your team because it you know seeing what it does helps me understand who you've had to hire and coerce into doing this thing with you and and all these and, and a bit of where you came from and you know all these sorts of things but starting with that is probably the most useful thing you know and and you know i will um, sort of give a, a, an example i talked to a company called noisely the other day who um, yeah. do this really interesting thing where basically it's a it's a it's a sound environment setting where if you work particularly like on your own in, in at home or in a busy, noisy environment, you can kind of, you know, they, they produce sounds and soundtracks that help you focus and, and so on. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, they gave me all the other answers eventually, but they started off with, you know, we produce this product that does this and I can't possibly give, you know, I can't do it as well as they can. And, and, and that helped me understand immediately kind of where they were going, who they sort of probably were, what they're trying to do. And, and then you can ask the other questions. But I think that's the thing. Don't try and lay it up and set it up and over-analyze and over-construct you know um, construct your story. Instead, it hit me with, you know, the, the, the heart of what it is, which is what it is you've built, um, at least so far. And, and then from that, I think the natural conversation flows. Someone once said to me, by the work, you shall
0: know the workman. And uh, I guess yeah. you see that a lot of times yeah. in the product. Yeah. You've just you... said it in an infinitely more picky <laughs> way than I have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: um,
0: Saranga, thank you so much for coming. This was even better than I expected. Um, I mean, this is just the kind of perfect hour that would be great for anyone along any stage of their development as a company should listen to, you know, just to kind of get perspectives on the market, to know what you're thinking about. Um, that kind of thing. How can people get in touch with you to contact you for whatever reason? Is it Twitter? Is it email?
1: What's the best way? Yeah, I mean, all of the above work. My um, to saranga at balderton.com. Twitter is actually generally more effective as you found. Um, Right. So saranga c is my Twitter handle and just because I monitor it super regularly so yeah so I think um, that's probably the easiest way but I mean it doesn't really matter. And you will get an answer from him. I will try really hard. <laughs> to and I guess if you, if, you, if you think you've reached out to me and you haven't had an answer, um, or if this happens going forward, you know, reach out to me again and tell me that I, you, I didn't give you an answer because I owe you one. And do you have an assistant for that or that's going to be you doing all No, that it's going to be me. So okay. it may take time sometimes. Um, okay. and, but you know, luckily I travel a lot, so I spend a lot of time on planes without an internet connection. And that's a great time to catch up on those.
0: Good, good, very good. If you're listening to us on iTunes, you can come watch our uh, extremely good looking faces on our YouTube channel. Uh, also, we're going to be posting uh, short videos on our Instagram, so follow us there. We're putting out Vine videos on Twitter as well, and we now have a, a teaser trailer coming out every Friday uh, for the episode coming out the following week. So this will be out with uh, kind of a 40 second teaser trailer. Uh, we're also sending out a survey soon. And I want to hear how you uh, consume Silicon Reel, and we want to make the changes accordingly. Obviously, we have these live episodes, we have the full episode on audio and visual. And and we put out small clips, but uh, I just want to find even more ways that people can find out uh, because I think this community loves these stories and they love <clears> to hear from the people you know on the ground like you. And I even think the, the valley and, and the alley like seeing what we're doing over here. But sometimes uh, they don't know how to consume it. So I'm always looking for that feedback. You know that from, from Blinks. I mean, sure. the, the consumption, video consumption habits of a human have to be all over the, the, the place and constantly changing mm-hmm. these days. So, uh, so there you go. We're at Silicon Reel uh, on Twitter. Send me a message. Hello at Silicon Reel. Uh, com. If you want to suggest guests, uh, we make these things happen very quickly. Uh, as we say uh, on Silicon Reel, it's about the people. Uh, you're one of them. I just, uh, I'm so glad you're back. Uh, I'm glad uh, that you're, you're kind of here in the UK to make all this happen. And uh, yeah, I think this is just the most exciting time to be in tech right now. And uh, it's uh, fantastic that you came on. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right. All the best. This week on Silicon Reel, Anastasia Emanuel indiegogo
1: i'm finding uh, innovations and amazing products out in the tech sphere and helping them raise finance i 100 percent believe in what we what indiegogo is trying to achieve i genuinely think it's transforming the finance industry
0: if you're going out to raise money through indiegogo or another crowdfunding platform just for the money
1: you're going to do it wrong you have to be savvy when it comes to marketing and outreach and getting people excited about your product from the beginning what indiegogo does is make you smarter faster
0: on Monday, Silicon Reel presents Anastasia Emanuel Indiegogo.
1: The world should decide what ideas come to life, not a handful of people who who can sign a check.